Hello everybody and welcome to the best of season 3. For this particular episode, I was joined by my very good friend Wongo, where we discussed the slice of life anime, love, chinibio and other delusions. Little did I know that this would be the first episode to reach the 200th play mark. I'm incredibly proud of this one and I hope that you too enjoy. Welcome to Chatsunami. Hello everybody and welcome to another episode of Chatsunami. I'm Satsunami and joining me today is a very special guest. Today I am joined by the one, the only, the Dark Souls Flame Master and long-term listener, Wonko. Welcome to Chatsunami. That has to be the nicest introduction I've ever had. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thanks for having me. Yes, um, where's the button to disconnect there? <laughs> no, I just got here. No! Rollers out, Adam. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, Adam Greenshield, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to steal your place. Ah. But anyway, sorry. How are you doing today, Wonko? I'm doing pretty good. I'm a bit nervous to be on because I'm not a big time streamer like most of the people you get on here. I'm just some random nobody who squats in a squalid corner of your charming Discord server. But uh, yeah, I'm still happy to be here. I've got my notes. I've got a bit of knowledge about the subject. So I hope I just don't embarrass myself on the internet. You'll be fine. I mean, nearly 100 episodes later and I was going to make a joke and say, oh, I haven't embarrassed myself. I've embarrassed myself plenty of time on the <laughs> podcast, so you know what? Don't you worry. You're amongst friends here. Well, I'm in good company here, yeah. These are my people. Yeah, today we're going to be talking about, oh, how to put this? Quite an interesting topic today because, yeah, it's going to be an anime that, quite frankly, I haven't really raised yet with Green Shield or Adam yet, but I feel as if, Adam, if you're listening, you would probably like this one. So today we're going to be talking about a is it right to say a lesser known anime? Yes and no. Uh, I'd say that the name Chunibyo, you know, it comes from this uh, this series, obviously is fairly well known. People know what a Chunibyo-esque character is. They might necessarily know where it came from, what the what the patient zero uh, was, as it were. But yeah, I would definitely say, however, that the characters, particularly Rika, but we will get into that, dear listeners, has absolutely left her mark on pop culture, on anime in, in general, and I even have some points to, to support that thesis. So stay tuned. I am looking forward to that, honestly. We've been messaging each other back and forth about like ideas for this episode and things. This whole idea was spawned in a particularly hot crucible of fire that is Halo Infinite multiplayer, so... Uh... <laughs> that is true. Baptism by fire and um, salty rage, so... <laughs> so podcasters out there, see if you need some inspiration, go into Halo Infinite. It is great. <laughs> For inspiration. Totally. And frustration. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> All part of the creative process. Halo Infinite Bashing. We do have an episode on that. Feel free to listen to that one because, yeah, oh, we, we honestly could do a whole episode about Halo Infinite and everything. But as you kind of alluded to there, yeah, we're going to be talking about an anime called Love, Chunibyo, and Other Desires. That is the correct name, isn't it? Or to give it its original title, Chunibyo Demo Koigai which literally translates to want to love despite Chunibyo. So, slightly different, but the idea is still there. Oh yeah, I should probably warn everyone before this starts that I'm a bit of a language snob when it comes to it, but I'm sure when I start explaining my backstory, it'll be clear why. So, bear with me here. Born a weep and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only joking. I'm I didn't joking. choose the weeb life, Setsunami. The weeb life chose me. Hey, that's a half-truth. 
<laughs> so yeah, this is a weird choice of anime to bring up because, as I said, the animes we kind of discuss on this podcast, at least so far, we've discussed things like Death Note, Beyblade, Princess Mononoke as well. Even Halo Legends got a spot. Oh, that was a great episode. <laughs> Why, thank you. I think Green Shield and Adam would disagree. The hatred came through so magnificently clearly. It was it was just oozing from my headphones. Oh, it was absolutely beautiful. But um, if I can just jump on what you were saying there. The the anime that you've covered so far, I would say, is more starter level anime, if a baby's mm-hmm. first anime, if you will. Sorry, Adam. But Chunibio is sort of when you start branching out more, when you start experimenting, I would say, because without going too much into it, because it's not the not the time yet, but Chunibio plays off the typical cliches, I would say, of rom-com and anime, but it also subverts your expectations, dare I say, in the most satisfying and well-written way. But we will get into that. But it's a, it's, it's an anime, I think both me and Sat have uh, have a great deal of affection for. Oh yeah, absolutely. So before we go into what this anime is about, because I know you'll have a well-done summary of this. <laughs> no pressure, that's <laughs> No pressure, but all the pressure. Look, if Adam can do it every week under duress, you can do it under duress. It'll be fine. That's what they all say. It'll be fine. It'll be read. No worries. Don't worry. After this, you can go back to the squalid corner of the Discord server. <laughs> <laughs> I get chained back to my radiator and only let out from time to time. Back into the channel. <laughs> back, I say. <laughs> the Dark Souls one. Anyway, sorry. I'm getting sidetracked. The darkest Dark Souls exactly. corner, if you will. <laughs> well, we just go into what Genebio's about to kind of contextualise how we found it. Well, I, I had a great one-line summary in my mind when the original plan, letting you in in, uh, in the behind the scenes here, uh, dear listener, but we were going to do the whole thing, but then we decided now nah, we'll split it up. That way we can cover more ground, we can get more content, we can get more clicks. So I was originally going to say that Genebio was a charming story of a guy and a girl meeting each other, falling in love, overcoming trials and tribulations, and then the subsequent peer pressure that their friends put on them to escalate their relationship, but... quite accurate to say for season one. It's definitely a love story, a romantic comedy. It's got some surprising depth. If ever I would say that there is an anime of two halves, I would say this is it. It's got some absolutely charming chemistry between the characters. It's got a lovely, chill, cozy, comfy slice of life, but it's also got hidden depth. It's got some bit of edge to it. Not too much, not over the top, but it's also very, very relatable, I find. So it's intriguing. Once again, I'm not really defining the subject subject matter but that's because the subject matter is sort of hard to define it's more it evolves it's a it's not an anime it's an experience. You're going to slap that in the box. <laughs> oh, that's a pull quote if I've ever heard one. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, Chinebio is one of those weird shows where it is, as you said, it's a slice of life show about basically, it's almost like a coming of age story, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Now you say it out loud, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a big if you will. So Chinebio is about a boy called Utah who is going through high school, or rather he's going from middle school to high school and he used to go through a thing called Genebio, which, as we said, is this kind of... It's kind of a syndrome, isn't it? They contextualise it in the anime as it being specifically a disease. You know, they they describe it as being a tumour or, or, or stuff like that. Although, in the opening... I really did my homework on this, and this is probably going to show, but in the very opening scene, there's like quick words that sort of tie in with Chunibio. And one of them is heberophrenic schizophrenia, which actually exists. It's also classified as a pubescent 
Infant Crisis, a sort of coming-of-age thing, and 14-year-old sickness, I believe, or 14 sickness. But it does exist, and whether you realise it or not, it's also fair to say that everyone has gone through it at some point, and everyone still goes through it throughout their whole life, I would say. Chinebioism, if that's even a term. Yeah, the process of... And I'm going to go back to what I was saying on my Edith Finch review, because would it be safe to say it's like a form of maladaptive daydreaming almost but to like a lesser extent yeah yeah i don't think it's quite as all consuming as maladaptive daydreaming is there's a couple of points i'm probably going to raise throughout here that underline that because tunibio for all the characters is a conscious choice they're not completely delusional but they do lean into it it does dictate how they will act in certain situations to a point that you can reliably expect them to do so i would say would, would be a fair analysis because throughout the story utah as i said he's going from middle school and he quote-unquote suffered from this chinebioism where it's basically like live action role play like he pretends to be the and i kind of joked about at the beginning the dark flame master where he controls like all these dark occult powers and spirits but he doesn't really he's just pretending but everyone around him kind of goes uh, what are you doing so you know he gets really embarrassed and when he goes into high school he tries to shed basically these kinds of behaviors and that's when he meets Rika who is this young girl who is going into high school as well was in the same class as him but is still going through that kind of Phase. I would say that she is the absolute antithesis of what Yuta wants. They say opposites attract. It's once again the case in Chunibio because Yuta is trying to bury his, what he sees as, as embarrassing past. And Rika is the walking incarnation of everything he did not want to see. The anime makes a point and Yuta makes a point of saying that he found a high school that was far away from his old one. He really wants to put a line under his, uh, his Chunibio shenanigans, but the past creeps back. Life finds a way, as they say in Jurassic Park. <laughs> and if I may quote another famous film that I haven't seen yet. Just when I thought I was out, they pulled Pulled me back back in. (laughs) Anyway, um, my like terrible classic backlog aside, will we just jump into discussing this amazing anime? Lead on, Satsunami. Oh, hold on. I'm getting a message from the spirit world, so hang on to your hats and your eye patches. (laughs) See, why why do I need a soundboard when I've got you, Wonko? Hang on, hang on. I I can hear a voice. Wow, I think we just caught a ghost live on this podcast. This is a first, ladies and gentlemen. This is a supernatural stream. (laughs) We fooled you. You thought we were going to go into heartwarming anime. But seriously, please subscribe. I'm hungry. (laughs) I need the money, please. Please Please. give clicks. (laughs) Hold on to your hats and your eye patches, and we will see you in just a couple of minutes. Welcome to Shatsunami, a variety podcast that discusses topics from gaming and films to anime and general interests. Previously on Shatsunami, we've analysed what makes a good horror game, conducted a retrospective on Pierce Brosnan's runs James Bond, and listened to us take deep dives into both the Sonic and Halo franchises. Also, if you're an anime fan, then don't forget to check us out on our sub-series, Chatsunani, where we dive into the world of anime. So far, we've reviewed things like Death Note, Princess Mononoke, and the hit Beyblade series. If that's so- Sounds like your cup of tea, then you can check us out on Spotify, iTunes, and all good podcast apps. As always, stay safe, stay awesome, and most importantly, stay hydrated. Life moves pretty fast, and in this always on the go world that we find ourselves in, 
it's becoming ever harder to pause and reflect on what we see. Yet if we don't, we miss the opportunity to experience the things that could truly change our lives. The Little Power of Inspiration aims to be that opportunity, to stop and savour not only the events around us, but the people, the experiences, the sights and sounds. Through these inspiring stories and poems of love, redemption and change, take a moment to really see all the inspirational treasures that are present. Inspiration is all around us. All we have to do is look. This episode is sponsored by Zencaster. Zencaster is an all-in-one podcast production suite that gives you studio-quality audio and video without needing all the technical know-how. It records each guest locally, then uploads the crystal-clear audio and video right into the suite so you have high-quality raw materials to work with. For more information on how you can get 30% off a Zencaster professional account, please check out the code in the bio. Are you familiar with the term Chenibio? They say it develops around the 8th grade at the cusp of puberty. It is a frightening disease of the adolescent mind. The line between childhood fantasy and a sense of self-awareness becomes blurred, resulting in some inexplicable behavior. For instance, a boy who, up till yesterday, only read weekly comics, develops a sudden interest in classic novels and suddenly demands to drink his coffee black despite the fact that he has never even drunk it before. Or a student who believes they possess some special power dives headfirst into the occult. Those were really dramatic. Oh, we're back. So, <laughs> welcome. <laughs> never oh, gets old, you that. sly panda, you. Oh, never gets old. So, how did you hear about Chinibio? Because I would say for me personally, it was quite a random experience like I, th- I think i've told you this before and we've kind of like exchanged our stories but yeah yeah yeah. you you vetted me before i came on here so. oh absolutely <laughs> i had to make sure you were a real chinibio fan of course yeah. only the finest <laughs> yeah the gatekeeping is strong in this community of five <laughs> but uh just for the record the panda lawyer wishes to point out that that was indeed a joke yes indeed he is he's given me the thumbs up yeah thanks i really should give him a name <laughs> yeah yeah he's done so much for the channel and yet so little recognition he's a true national hero but maybe not a human being i was gonna say maybe if you donate we can buy him some trousers but anyway sorry <laughs> getting sidetracked <laughs> but yeah i remember my first experience with chinebio was actually when green Shield and i were at university him and i watched a lot of anime and it was really like a turning point for for me because we watched a lot of like studio ghibli stuff we yeah, watched yeah. full metal alchemist brotherhood hunter x hunter or hunter hunter you know what i mean yeah yeah <laughs> i've spent enough time on the internet to know <laughs> to know where you're going i know things <laughs> good and lagan that kind of thing mm-hmm. and i remember at the time as well attack on titan was very popular so much so that we had someone in our campus that actually walked around with a cape from the survey corps did you good. know that? god no this is this is news to me wow i guess I let anyone go to university these days. It was quite funny because I remember everybody looking down and saying, why is that girl wearing a cape? And I looked and I immediately recognised the survey corps insignia and I was like, oh no. You no. didn't run out after going, Cesar Diaz, Don Diego. Yes. Yes. 
Notice me, weeb senpai. That's why um, my uni career was cut short. But anyway, moving swiftly on. <laughs> so anyway, that's why I was banned from the campus. This is how I found Judy but now I'm only good. <laughs> So I remember in my final year, I came down with a really bad sickness. I think it was mold or something in my flat. It was really bad. Oh yes, yes, yeah. You mentioned this on a couple of other couple of other times, haven't you? Yeah, it basically floored me so much so that I was kind of stuck in my room, feeling sorry for myself, ordering mm. spicy takeout to take away <laughs> like they clogged up it does work by the way i'm mm. not sponsored by any no, of these no, it places it really does but chili chili will absolutely unbung your nose it's just your problem with what you do with it afterwards oh yeah <laughs> Great power and great responsibility and all that, you know. Your flatmates won't thank you, but... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you're feeling miserable, so you might as well inflict your misery upon others. Yes, anyway, the backwards salute aside, I was feeling really rubbish. And I decided, because I couldn't really get out and see Green Shield or any of my other friends, I was going to like just explore different shows at the time. So I was looking online, and yeah. the first show I came across was Black Bullet. Oh, yes, you mentioned Black Bullet to me. <laughs> oh, the only reason I watched Black Bullet was because everybody said, oh, it's just like Attack on Titan, but with monsters instead of, you Battle know, giants. and <laughs> it's nothing like Attack on Titan. What it's the terrible. hell? It was a waste of time. I've, I've said this to you so many times oh, as a joke. Give us your favourite quote, Sats. Give us your favourite quote. My favourite quote, honestly, just watch the first two minutes of this anime and you will be laughing so much <laughs> that you'll turn it off right away. There's a scene where the protagonist is a young boy, he's cowering in fear and he's like, oh no, what's going on? because there's a monster in front of him and this old guy comes up to him and says if you don't want to die live and you're like well that's <laughs> a quote to live by to be fair if you don't want to be dry bathe to quote fate stay night uh, people die when they are killed you know so uh... pretty much the same energy <laughs> yeah pretty much the same energy but anyway sorry back to Chinebio that was a mighty tight tangent but oh we're gonna do we're gonna do worse I'm sure <laughs> oh totally I remember as I said I was stuck in my room and I was looking through YouTube and I kept getting recommended because I'm a massive weep I got recommended all of these anime clips and you know that way you watch an anime clip and it's like top 10 funniest anime clips oh Oh god, that brings me back. Yeah. Yeah. And then you watch it and it's crap. It's just like, oh yeah. look, it's a very yeah. problematic scene. Oh, he's being a pervert. And you like, won't believe what happens next. And you're like, oh, this is awful. This is one of the worst things. But anyway, I saw one for Chinebiel. Absolutely got enamored by it. I thought, this is actually really funny. I was like, oh my god. Do you remember what the clip was? Or has it It was the one where Utah, I think it was from season two Granted, but it was the one where he gets put in a compromising situation. Not anything perverted. Oh, and he dresses up as the magical girl? Yeah, he loses a bet and he has to dress up as a magical girl like Sailor Moon or something. Well, maybe not as revealing, but he's like standing there. Yeah, no, thank God for that. He's standing there and he's doing like the pose, getting really into it. Oh, he gets into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then one of the other characters takes a photo of him and it was just like the short scream he has when he grabs her phone and he throws it with both hands up on yeah, its yeah. head. I don't know why I found it so funny. Maybe it's just because I was ill and coming off the penicillin, but I was just like, <laughs> wow, this is hilarious. So I was like, okay, I'm going to check it out because the comments were very positive saying, oh, I love this and everything. And I'm not going to lie, I'm a sucker for these kind of like rom-com slice of life shows. That's probably why I like, you know, certain key dramas and things like that. And especially for... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially for anime because sometimes you just get tired 
tired, don't you? You get tired of anime being constant Dragon Ball Z battles and things. Yeah, no, it, it kind of falls into its own trap of always having to have a bigger, badder bad guy who not only can destroy the world, but now it's the universe, and now it's the multiverse, and now how will our hero overcome this? And yeah, there's only so many times you can do that before even the audience starts going, oh God, just get on with it kind of thing. You you, you can burn out on the old shonen. Oh, absolutely. And you just think, I just want to, you know, relax with a show. I want a yeah, show no, with no. little to no threat, which <laughs> kind of sums this up completely. You are preaching to the converted. <laughs> so I watched it on, I can't even remember where, probably YouTube at the time, but I watched it, absolutely fell in love with it. It used to be on Netflix and then they took it down in the UK, which is rubbish, but I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with it, but I kind of kept it close to my chest. Yeah, you didn't reveal your power level, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's weird because it's different if you meet another fellow weeb and you go, oh, I love Dragon Ball, I love Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood. You know, those are things you usually share. Yeah, yeah, maybe not the the cutesier, more chill, more cosy, more slice of life kind of stuff. Yeah, on a surface level, this show is very... If you watch it at the beginning, you'll kind of see it's, again, very cutesy, non-threatening, a bit kind of goofy, and you think, oh, right, this is going to be, you know, just stereotypical anime. Very low stakes, very chill. You know, it's not a taxing watch at all, I would say. Oh, yeah. But... but, (laughs) It's a but and a big but. When you actually get into it and you get into the deeper themes, which I will get on to. Oh, we we absolutely will. Just bear with us here. (laughs) It can be heartbreaking at times, but sorry, before we go on, and apologies for rambling there. Nothing wrong with a good ramble. You say that now, but... (laughs) (laughs) Who will regret this? But yeah, how did you get into Chinebio? Oh man, it's a a long story. Uh, A bit like yours, really. And uh, to malappropriate a quote from Fight Club, I would say that Chinebio met me at a very strange point in my life. So sit down, buckle up. I'm going to not go into the sordid details, but I will say that it was not a good point in my life. So I've been a weeb for quite some time. I've always been sort of in and out of it. And um, what we probably should have said before really uh, going into this is that Shinubio is produced by KyoAni or Kyoto Animation. They tend to do some excellent, very well animated, very well designed, very beautiful, and tends to be slice of life kind of stuff. Although the first thing they ever did was actually uh, Full Metal Panic Fumofu, which I still hold up as being one of the finest examples of comedy that anime has to offer, but that is a story for another time. They did The Melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya back in 2008, which I sort of got into it really sort of kick-started my interest in anime back when I was but a, a, a knee-high bairn if only no I was I, I was old even back then never mind that's why they call you one called the Benjamin Button oh you oh you <laughs> sneaky little panda sorry go on <laughs> KyoAni has a kind of curse and that's their season ones will absolutely be fantastic the season twos not so much because Haruhi Suzumiya season one is pretty damn good although it's presented in a non-chronological order which sort of did my head in the first time I watched it Same. season two on my deathbed I will regret the hours I spent watching part of that damn season two because for those of you sitting at the back or who don't know or who are in on the joke and grinning madly and just want me to tell you they have eight episodes that are a temporal loop that traps the characters doing the exact same thing for eight 
damn episodes the only thing that changes being certain pieces of clothing and the bikinis that they use when they go to the pool in a certain scene it was torture it was hell so that burnt me out a bit it was only a couple of years later uh, this would be 2010 2011 when they put out K-On which is cute girls doing cute things notably they're just doing a music club and they're sort of messing around so they already have the blueprint for Chinibio kind of thing and once again season 1 was pretty good season 2 spun its tires a bit too much and the film made me cry bitter bitter tears it was heartbreaking and then bring us to 2012 because Chinibio originally aired in the autumn or fall for our American viewers the fall slot of 2012 before that was a series called uh, Hyoka now Hyoka once again was a very chill very slice of life kind of thing not too many in the there was only four main characters essentially it was sort of a very chill very low key sort of Sherlock Holmes the main character was sort of good at solving mysteries and the female uh, protagonist had an insatiable curiosity so she'd like push and prod him to go do stuff he'd do it once again it was a long season one it kind of dropped off and by that point I kind of lost interest also the fact that Girls and Panzer was airing at the same time kind of completely pushed it from my mind so I'd heard of Chinibio but and I, and I knew it was going to be airing soon but it didn't really make me want to want to go out of my way especially after after Hyoka the second call of the first season but this as I mentioned was a very strange point in my life because uh, whether I realised it or not at the time and I mostly didn't but I was struggling with depression rather mightily so I went back this would have been my second year of university I managed a week and a half and I had the mother of all breakdowns it was it was not pretty so I was hospitalised I was sent to a high security psychiatric ward which is always where you want to find yourself. I was on 200 milligrams of sertraline a day. They gave me risperidone, which is a god-awful antipsychotic, and diazepam, which is better known as Valium. So I was a zombie, basically. I was zonked out my mind. So I missed the first couple of episodes. Eventually, after about a month, I, I was given a bit more freedom. I was allowed to, to, to go to my uni room. I was allowed to try and go back to classes. That was a, that was a disaster, but that's a story for another time. But uh, in going back, I was able to get back access to the internet and browsing the web, I see that A, so you know the, the 4chan anime image board I've outed myself as, as an absolute degenerate but it was in absolute uproar because at the time the fourth episode had just aired where Nibutani, one of the characters who up until that point had been playing what would appear to be a very sweet character, sort of the atypical oh no, not the atypical, the, the absolute standard, like the gold standard love interest, you know, she was cutesy, she was slightly flirtatious, she'd expressed interest in our boy Yuta, so a lot of people were rooting for her. And in season one, episode four, she reveals her true colours by starting to be a bit more manipulative and stealing the Mabinoyon and what we think in, in a scene, making Dekamori cry. You know, she's a younger character. She's also fairly cute. So a lot of people like her. So she was being lambasted with all sorts of names that I cannot repeat here. But I'm like, what? what is this anime that's caused such an uproar? So I go through the threads and I see a couple of other screen grabs. And uh, particularly, there's a couple of gifts floating around from the opening scene where, you know, Rika's doing the the, the finger twirl and like dancing along and it's you know okay that's that's unusual never seen a character like that so I got into that and um, I grabbed all the episodes I could went back to the ward devoured them in one evening I'm like my god it was it was brilliant it was just what I needed it was cathartic it was relatable it really really cut through it made me actually uh, feel something in the midst of uh, of depression which let's face it is pretty rare it sort of rekindled an appreciation for, for, for anime and so the next week when I was allowed out I eagerly downloaded that one and it also helped me branch 
branch out a bit more, it made me go back and visit uh, Clanad, which is another Kyoani one which predates uh, both Hyoka, Kaon, and Chunibyo, but it is an absolute brutal tearjerker as well. Uh, I also got Angel Beats, which is another fairly cathartic, let's say. It's not a downer per se, but it deals with some serious themes, deals with like death and the afterlife and regrets and stuff like that, which really helped me work through. I mean, I also have to say as a brief aside at the same time, this was when I really got into Dark Souls <laughs> as well. So I had Dark Souls push me and uh, I don't want to say punish me because that would make me sound weirder than I already am but there was like the, the the idea of overcoming that is encoded in Dark Souls but then there was also this much more relaxed much more chill catharsis that anime was affording me and so it had rekindled a sort of a love that I that I felt for anime because to give a bit of backstory and I know we're, we're, we're rambling still but I'm a child of the 90s so when Pokemania swept the globe and uh, hit the school I was in at the time in Ireland I never stood a chance I never stood a chance you know it was Pokemon Digimon on a bit of Beyblade, then it sort of fell out of favor when I discovered Halo, and then I got back into it. It's sort of been on and off and on and off. And um, even thinking about it, because Sats is a he, he's a nice boy. He mentioned that uh, I'd get me to talk about uh, how I got into it, and I realized that I've I actually got into anime when I was four years old when um, when my dad showed me Ghost in the Shell. So really, in terms of being a weeb, I never stood a chance. It's just been sort of on and off and hot and cold. But I would say that Chinibio is definitely one of the series that helped kickstart and ignite my uh, love for. I appreciate for anime and also what it can do as an art form. I'm not I'm sounding absolutely pretentious now, but KyoAni, for all their faults in terms of story writing, although there's not that many to be said for season one, they make some absolutely beautiful backdrops. I mean, Chunibyo is a gorgeous anime. The, the backgrounds are watercolored, but they've also got an amazing interplay between light and shadow. The character designs are absolutely on point and the music is understated but it's exactly what you want going back to watch Junibio for this episode it was it was like slipping into a pair of comfy slippers or a lovely cup of hot tea it really gave me an appreciation for anime sort of all over again because you get a lot of fairly derivative stuff in anime they tend to chase what what, what works like at the time Junibio I think it was more the harem animes or the, the, the sort of battle academy now it's more drifted into isekai and stuff like that but there are a lot of cookie cutter stuff that do not try but Chunibyo it's got a lot of heart to it it's not a perfect anime but at the end of the day do you really want something to be perfect because perfection is boring and the imperfections are just something else for you to appreciate which sort of ties into one of the key themes of the anime so uh, that's my counter ramble to your initial ramble I think think that's succinct enough over to you first of all it wasn't really a ramble no thank you for sharing all of that and sharing your experience with it especially because Chinibio is one of those shows that is very deceptive oh absolutely absolutely if you watch the first couple of episodes versus the last couple of episodes it's almost like night and day theme wise because at the beginning as I said it starts out with this quite comedic tone and don't get me wrong throughout the story the majority of it is comedic but when it needs to be serious it does it so well I would argue a bit too much because poor Rika can't catch a break I'd say there's two major serious issues just one of them would do but they're also packed into the second part of the season so like Satsunami said it sort of reels you in with this cosy rom-com this slice of life you get to episode 6 and all of a sudden you realise that maybe there's something a bit more to it although it's been hinted at 
before this point. You know, Rika, ogres are like onions and so is Rika. She's got layers. You sort of get to know her a bit more and then you realise that this Chunibyo, it isn't, it isn't just her being childish. There's a reason behind it and it's not necessarily a good one because she's fairly evasive and she's fairly insistent. So you get the feeling that there's a good reason and then it starts, things start to come together and then it absolutely hits you in episode eight, uh, episode seven rather and wow it comes out of left field but the problem not not the problem but the thing is it's also so relatable uh, we, we're, we're teasing the viewers now we're really gonna have to get into it a bit more but um yeah let's get right into it but just before we do get into it i'm gonna warn you guys now if you haven't seen it and this has tickled your curiosity please feel free to pause the episode and go watch it and then come back but we are probably going to dive into spoiler territory so just a kind of quick warning there because honestly i would say this anime is worth watching from start to finish but you're completely right because throughout the show at least for the beginning Chinebio syndrome is really just painted as quite this kind of cringy and yeah, yeah, yeah. immature thing and you see that a lot with Rika so Rika is as we said she's a teenage girl who lives with her older sister called Toka Toka is basically she's a chef isn't she? She is and a good one at that. And she's like this very successful woman who looks after her sister but quite frankly has had enough of her you know attitude <laughs> in this chinebioism and initially it seems very cookie cutter like it's not but it does seem that way at the beginning it is deceptively cookie cutter yeah. though isn't it it's like oh this is the main character he's fairly bland Yuta he does play into a lot of the sort of slightly how do I say the slightly dense main character tropes that you tend to see in anime yeah he has a lot of similarities with Kyon from uh, the melancholy of Haruhi Suzumiya so you've sort of seen this kind of character before you sort of vaguely know how he's going to act but then you have the fact that he has a past with Chunibio thrown in that sort of skews it, like you were saying with Rika. She has Chunibio, and that's not just an aside. It's not just some cutesy act. It's not just something she does to try and differentiate herself from the crowd. There's a there's something much, much deeper going on behind there. And what I love about it is Yuta, despite having this colourful past, as it were, is the dark flame Flame master. (laughs) Oh, so good. Yeah, I have to admit, one of my favourite scenes just before I go on is see when Rika outs them as being the dark flame master in the nurse's office. And he's like bouncing around just like, how did you know that? Well, it's... it's sort of a funny theme with um, both Nibutani and uh, and our boy Yuta. So whenever Chunibyo is brought up, their embarrassment is like physically made manifest. Usually as pain, they beat their heads against the wall. They roll around on the floor. They throw themselves against various uh, various cabinets and stuff like that. I mean, obviously, I don't know if it's to be taken literally, but uh, this is just an anime. It is fairly symbolic and allegorical. But haven't we all been there? Haven't we all done something in our past that is so cringy when we think back on it now? We just want to the ground to open up and swallow us you know absolutely and i think that's what makes it so relatable yeah i've got another another friend who enjoys his anime as well and i was sort of talking with chunibia about it just to see if he'd bring up any talking points and he told me that it's one of the two anime he can't watch along with watamote because and i quote it's too cringe in a good way or in a way, yeah, in a, in a in an all too relatable way. Ah, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've all we've all been there. But I mean, um, the opening crawl makes a point of saying it's sort of pretension when you when you all of a sudden have never had coffee before, and all of a sudden you decide you want it black, or you start reading uh, foreign classics in their original language that you can't read. You know, like uh, Nietzsche's Also Sprach Zagathustra or stuff like that. We we've all been there. We've all been trying way too hard to be cool. And to tie in with a previous episode of Chatsunani, it might have been inspired by 
by the way, we see L act, for instance, who's way too edgy and too cool for school. But it's that kind of idea to stand out. You know, you want to make yourself different. You want to make yourself cool. You want to make yourself edgy. But you don't have the wherewithal to realize just how cringy or obnoxious you're actually being. I think I've actually brought this up in a previous episode where I talked about my gaming experience. So years and years ago, when I was in high school, or rather like the lower half, I was still playing games like Pokemon, Sonic, those kind of games, you know, like quite childish, colourful platformers. But as soon as I hit 18, there was kind of that societal almost expectation, not really from anybody else, but... Well, we, we, we do live in a society, to be fair. Well, well, that is true. That is true. Every time I go out, I'm reminded of that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember, that's the reason that I was so into FPS games. And don't get me wrong, I love FPS games, but that's why I was so into them, because, and again, it's a stupid thing to say, but I consider them to be more mature. mature. And, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's like, oh, I'm not playing baby Sonic games or anything. No, I'm, I'm, I'm done with RPGs. I, I shoot people. I am the Call of Duty now. There's actually a quote from the writer C.S. Lewis, and I think I've told you this before. You might have might have dropped this on a, on a previous episode, yeah. Where he basically says, and he summarises it really well, he says, when I became a man, I put away childish things, including the fear of childishness and the desire to be very grown up. And I think that's such a perfect quote, because don't get me wrong, if you're all consumed in something, you know, and it's your kind of one thing, you know, obviously that's going to be detrimental, but Mm, having a fear almost, because I've got a friend who is very much into collecting Lego and like huge sets, and even today, Lego are kind of pandering towards an older generation and things. And sorry, I know this is like such a tangent from Chinebio, but it does link to it. No, it ties in. There's a a lot of things actually tie into Chinebio because another thing, I'll uh, let you get back to the Lego thing, but you were mentioning that uh, when you turned 18, you started playing more mature games. So I, I think it happened a bit earlier with me because when I got my first Xbox, I tried to give myself the coolest, most badass, hard-ass sounding name out there. So it was Deathbringer, but it wasn't just Deathbringer because the E, A, and T of death were 347 because Leet was cool. That was how badass I was. And then, you know, you get older and you go back and look at it and you think oh wow did I really on a previous episode you talked with a certain wisteria moth and she was saying that she'd recently rebranded if you remember she was saying that her previous rebranding was part of herself but she wanted to move on kind of to be wisteria moth the same but unchanged as it were and it's kind of the same thing I've I've related to that because ever since I've moved away from being Deathbringer and now typically I try and be Wonko the same because like you say it's, it's, it's good to be passionately obsessed in something but it's also good to not take yourself too seriously all the time a bit of humor never killed anyone as as you said about yuta and rika the protagonists of this anime because yuta is very much the straight man in comparison to rika being the chaotic gremlin who (laughs) and going back to something you said earlier because you said about the animation style and i completely agree so sometimes there's like a battle scene and it's not actually taking place you know it's all in the characters heads but they still animate these grandiose scenes oh it's absolutely beautiful isn't it yeah where it's like the characters are pulling out like all these fantastical weapons and Mm -hmm. blasting you know powerful energy beams and things it's really it's visually really appealing but of course then it cuts to like the dark kind of reality of it and it is just them flailing it's also comic effect you majorly made me think of the first proper fight that we see with Rika against Toka in episode 
episode two when we get the transformation we get the music change all of a sudden we get to see what she's seeing and it really is straight out of like a a, a shonen it wouldn't look amiss in Dragon Ball Z but it looks even better I would say to be honest there's, there's just that thing you know the Chinibio is sort of or it seemed to be rooted in childishness but it also makes the mundane so beautiful and I think that's what Chinibio is able to capture fairly well throughout the animation throughout the backdrops throughout most of the uh, the series to be fair because probably good might mention this again but Chinibio as a, as a style it's very saturated there's very bright colors there's lovely usage of shadow and light in certain scenes but I don't know if you caught this well you probably did you might have noticed it but your brain did to quote uh, another YouTube channel that's slightly better known than, than you dare I say but when Rika finally loses her Chinibio and spoilers but to be fair we've warned you since this begun when she loses her Chinibio everything becomes desaturated everything is much more shades of grey the colours are a lot less vibrant the anime just sort of primes you for this everything is saturated with the sort of childlike wonder the, the mundane made beautiful that Chinibio brings and then when it's gone you're brought crashing back to soulless grey and colours that just don't stand out and it really sort of hits home it really makes you feel sort of unnerved I would say and to tap on that as well I mentioned the music earlier and I might as well this is as good a point as any to do it but Kyoani pays such attention to the music it's absolutely fantastic when Rika and Yuta are together they're, you know, they're the main couple they end up together they have this gorgeous light motif that's usually played between a single violin and a single piano that is taken uh, as well when things are a lot more serious so their sort of love theme is called Kimi no Tonari ni or Rikai to Aiju Yashi Manazashi. I'm so sorry about the pronunciation. But then there's a lot, uh, there's a really, really sad one as well that is once again piano and violin, but it's played differently. This is Sure Chigao Kokoro to Kokoro, but it also keeps playing with it because when the Chunibyo stuff kicks in, when, like you said, it's it, it's imaginary, it's the imaginations kicking in, then the music tends towards harpsichord and electric guitar. And then in the everyday, the sort of more humdrum stuff, particularly at school, the music tends to be more uh, punctuated by acoustic guitar and keyboard so whether you realize it or not the anime is sort of manipulating you when it wants the emotional punches it starts playing the violin and the piano when it wants you to realize that this is more to do with chinibio it brings out the harpsichord the drum kit the electric guitar and then for the more standard stuff it, you know it, it's more the acoustic and a bit of a bit of keyboard as well so it's super subtle but it's super well done in terms of grounding you the viewer and priming you as to what to expect in a certain scene from music cues alone because especially in the early parts of the season you can see the kind of bubbly background music going yeah, on yeah, constantly no, no. and it's kind of the same loop and you think all right fair enough but there's one beautiful scene i just want to point out where i think it's when they kind of realize their feelings towards each other like it's kind of solidified when they're under the bridge oh you mean the confession scene that's the one i don't know if we're going to go through episode through episode but uh, i have in my notes that that is probably the best and the most beautiful beautiful confession scene in the whole of anime it is absolutely amazing the thing i love about this scene and the anime as a whole because as i said it's an anime that you don't really expect there to be 
any threats or anything. Mm-hmm. Season two's a little bit different, but don't worry, we won't go into that because oh. yeah, that would be a whole other five-hour diatribe of my, me saying... My blood pressure isn't ready for it. Yeah, for this one, again, as I said, Utah has been trying to, you know, build himself up as this like, you know, very serious person, but as soon as he's with Rika, he learns to communicate with her, if that he makes does. sense. He does. So, like, initially you think Rika is just, like, this weird girl who is, you know, she's pretending to have these superpowers locked behind a magic eye and everything. But then throughout the series, you realise, and again, we'll get into it, but you realise this is a defence mechanism because every time she's studying for something, you know, and she's like, oh no, it's the evil number five yeah. the, the clown or <laughs> the something clown, you know yeah. yeah and she gets like smacked it's like come on be serious she uses that as like a defense mechanism and initially you think oh haha slapstick humor but when you learn the reason you think oh sweet jesus no yeah and especially the reason behind why she adopted Shinibio as a defense oh, yeah. mechanism in the first place emotional gut punch after emotional gut punch at a point where you don't expect it and yeah that confession scene is just absolutely fantastically done yeah you've yeah. got the as you said you've got the song swelling and the background you've got the very gentle vocals and for once Utah lets his guard down and he speaks to Rika in a way she can understand so yeah yeah he, he really leans into the Chinibio yeah it's just such a cute scene where he puts on the dark flame yeah, master you know yeah. and he's like to confess to her but then a bike rolls by. and he just blushes to his ears and yeah and he's like oh no never mind and of course Rika's just so enamored I've written down here awkward fumbling and deeply, deeply touching. You really get the feeling that this is two adolescents who are head over heels for each other, trying to confess their feelings no matter how embarrassing it is. But like you said, the, the setting is so magnificent because it's sort of their place. In episode five, it's where Utah gives Rika her new email address as a reward for passing the test, which she absolutely treasures because it's from him. And as, it, as the series goes on, we know why. So it's kind of their place. It's nighttime. You have the lights in the distance that, that Rika sort of considers to be this unseen horizon that she insists exists and it holds a great deal of significance I think the night sky is like pinkish tinged they're all alone you know we've all been teenagers we've all had these awkward horrible beautiful moments and it really really taps into that I have to give absolute mad props here as well because Rika preempts him she confesses first and that takes guts and it, it's a beautiful inversion as well because we're going through my notes if, if it hasn't showed before I studied humanities which is basically telling you how to overthink the fuck out of anything so they flip Yuta goes full tuny edgelord when he confesses but Rika just confesses normally and you know she says uh, I, I, I like you or skida or think it's skida even when they confess their love for each other they can't look at each other they can't even hold hands they just sort of entwine their pinky fingers it's a gesture of intimacy a very powerful one but it's also limited by how they feel at the same time absolutely magnificent if ever you regard one scene from this anime I would say absolutely watch that and the, the song called um, Kimi no Tonari Ni and I don't know how to describe it it's like the cliched song that plays during I don't know like a western rom-com when you know you know things are going to go down or like in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and it was more lovey-dovey stuff it's just that kind of thing it's got this sort of smooth almost mirage Carey-esque vocals. You got the sort of um, chime and, and, and sound sort of playing from left to right on the channels. It really is something else. What makes it even more impactful? Because I never really thought of that until you mentioned it. It is a spot that is very significant to them. It's their spot. They go back to it in season two for the most frustrating finale that the world has ever seen. If you oh remember. yeah, Jesus, let's not go into that because. <laughs> 
Yeah, I remember watching I'm that. I'm so sorry about this. I know we, we're teasing the audience something terrible, like, oh, we know what happens, but you don't. It's like, we don't really want to do that. We want to make this its own thing later on. Yeah, trust me, you're not missing too much by waiting on season no. two. Season one, absolutely go check out. Season two, uh, if you're bored. <laughs> but yeah, as you said, you know, she gets her new, is it her email address? Yeah, yeah, because um, in Japan, even back then, they used to do email addresses, and I think they still do to a greater extent. Text is, is very much a Western thing so it's a it's one of those cultural differences which is kind of interesting why is it french though oh well there's a reason for that it's it's actually easter egg so rika's voice actress nibutani's voice actress and dekamori's voice actress are all they're seiyu so they're more than just uh, voice actors seiyu are singing and dancing through the whole thing oh. and they have a group which is called black raison d'etre and it's also black raison d'etre that does the ending theme oh. for chunibio so yeah you know because i just remembered that when you said about the theme so i'm like oh yeah well that is actually quite cool kind of a time but it also works because you know black raison d'etre that's 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 lovely and edgy and it's in french which is fairly unknown outside of france i would say <laughs> also another fun french fact there's a scene where they're trying to start like a club i have a whole breakdown yeah. <laughs> on that ready to roll don't you worry about that so before we go into like the emotional core because i feel as if that's the next one we have to go into but there is like a scene where they're trying to set up like a magical society and nap- what is it the far eastern magical society and napping yeah napping cup or something like that yeah and oh it's just so funny but they need like an extra member and Rika pretends to be possessed by at least in the Japanese dub or sorry the Japanese version the original she pretends to be English and you know it's like really bad hello nice to meet you and then of course the teacher calls her out completely which is brilliant and it's just like what do you think of Rika and she's just like ah oh no Uh, does not compute (laughs) whereas in the English dub she speaks French, French uh-huh. or other. She's an English woman who's moved to France. Uh. Yeah, she like you know she speaks shit in a Luther French to you, but <laughs> she does that. She speaks that, <laughs> and she's just like, um, my eye, oh no, she's gone. It's like, oh well, you can't have you know five members. It's like that's like an L level play right there. It is. To- yeah, and you, you sort of cotton on pretty quick that uh, the teacher is actually fairly adept at handling Rika. Before we talk about the, you know, the emotional core of this, because this is a whole thing in its own, let's talk about the characters as well, because we we've kind of skirted around them. You know, we've got Yuta, as we said, who's like the straight lace, wanting to push away his chinibioism. We've got Rika, who fully embraces it. And of course, we've got Toka, who is trying to curb Rika's, not enthusiasm, but in fact, no, it is. <laughs> that's pretty apt actually yeah play the play the theme in your own head (laughs) but of course (laughs) we've got other characters to go on we've got supporting cast members which we've mentioned i think you might have heard nibutani or dekamori being thrown out but uh probably we should explain who on earth they are Nibutani is as you perfectly summarise she is the love interest at least for the first couple of episodes until Yuta realises that she used to be a Chinibio as well and she's tried to pretend she's not anymore and that also leads to the introduction of Dekimori who is a younger friend to Rika who follows her around keeps calling her you know like masters if she's like learning all these spells from her and things and just harasses Nibutani because Nibutani used to be technically like a witch, or so she says, you know, like a fake witch called Mori Summer. 
and Decca Mori found basically her deviant art page, let's just say, or her Tumblr to be exact. <laughs> MySpace, perhaps? Yeah, maybe MySpace, maybe MySpace. She found that, she became completely enamoured. She, like, said, oh, I love Mori Summer's teachings and things. And she, she holds her in a very, very high regard, is the point. Like, that leads to their kind of rivalry that Decca Mori can't believe that Nibutani is this, you know, she wants to distance herself. And they, I, I would say they're probably second or third kind of most important because you know Nebutani and Dekamori are the supports for Yuta and Rika but then we get to the bottom tier of support characters because you've obviously you've got the teacher you've got all the kind of side characters you've got Yuta's mum who can't remember what her job is but it must be the night shift <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's unlucky but she's out of the way so you know shenanigans can ensue yeah and the dad's in Jakarta for some reason so it's like okay fair enough but we've got two other characters we've got Ishiki who is basically the only other supporting male character the male character gets voice lines anyway because the classmates don't play into it very very much yeah and he doesn't get a lot to like he has one episode that revolves around him but as the series goes on his impact gets less and less and especially in season two he gets shafted pretty badly let's be honest I mean the shaftening begins in season one but poor Ishiki in season two in the film like he's he's like like uh, like you say Sats he's a he's more of a supporting character in the light novels he gets a bit more to do his like major character trait is how about them girls man pretty much it's a shame really it's a shame he's not the worst I've ever seen I will admit in that kind of character trope I just feel as if they didn't have anything to do with them no but he taps into that slightly uncomfortable stereotype of the friend who's more more worried about your sexual life than he is his own kind of thing you know hey man i'm never gonna get any girls but you should totally go you know go for it dude it's a bit weird not gonna lie (laughs) and of course he pines for the other girl who and i know you and i have differences in regards to opinions for this character so the final character is cumin who is basically the reason why they have napping society and their name because she's a senior in high school and she basically sleeps all the time. That's her running joke. Personally, I feel as if she does nothing in this and she's only just there to encourage as it were or just... She yeah, she, she does seem to enjoy the Chinubi antics that go along so she's got a very sweet and sort of supporting side so she's happy she, she plays along as best she can even though she's never really experienced Chinubio. She says herself that she's been homeschooled for quite some time so she has this sort of awkwardness about her as such she's absolutely she's she's got a, a, an eccentric hobby napping as uh, as sats mentioned but she's also like super interested in this Janubio that she's never experienced despite the fact you have yuta and nibutani shouting at her about how horrible and cringy and embarrassing it is she is like a kind of good foil in that way but i don't know i, I feel as if she's just the, she's not as bad as ishiki i, I feel as if no. he gets a worse brunt he's a joke character i would say at least cumin is taken seriously yeah semi-seriously whereas Ishiki yeah as you said he just gets absolutely pooped on left right and centre throughout the entire thing and even when he does help Yutan go and you're like it's not great there's side plots as well with the Butani and Dekamori fighting against one another some of that can get tiring I have to say more for and you'll probably be able to remind me of the episode in question but there is a particular episode I do remember this would be 
be the, the Christmas OVA, would it? No, 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 no. We're not touching that with a barge pole. <laughs> not touching no. that with a barge no, pole. No, 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 no. All right. It's crossing <laughs> that out. Strike it out. It doesn't exist. There's an episode where they go to the beach, and oh. it has got to be the most depressing anime beach episode I have ever watched in my life. Like, they have the usual, you know, oh, let's go to the beach. We've got the, what do you call them, water guns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right, yeah. And they've got, like, their antics. Like, they're all trying to get at one another, and there's all that. But on the flip side, you've got this really, really sad moment where Yuta starts to realise why Rika is the way she is. Yeah, the, the pennies start slowly dropping throughout the beach episode. And it, ju- it just feels more like a distraction, honestly. Yeah, when it keeps cutting back to them and their happy-go-lucky antics, and then Yuta trying to help Rika, realising there's more going on, realising things are a lot more serious, a lot more deep than perhaps you might have initially realised. So, the main characters, let's have a brief rundown. So first we have Yuta, and now Sats, I have a question for you, and it's a bit of a trick question, but I'll go for it anyway. Is Yuta a Jojo reference? In what way? Particularly the poses and the way he holds his hand in front of his face. That's what I'm... I mean, technically, yes, technically. but I don't know if it's officially... Ha <laughs> ha! You fool! Yeah, because I, I did a bit of homework on this. So, in the in the original, he's voiced by Jun Fukuyama, who is perhaps better known as Lelouch, or Lelouch V. Britannia, if you prefer, from Code Gosh, or Code Geese. It's Gosh in the original Irish. I spent 14 years in Ireland. I'm going to pronounce it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and particularly when he does the Dark Flame Master, it's almost one for one as how he did Lelouch's voice. So it really sort of jerked me upright when I heard it, because I watched uh, Code Gosh in the original and then watched it dubbed. Although, to be fair, the dub was pretty good, too. There's nothing wrong with it. Like Satsunami said, he's very much the straight man. And to misquote a certain meme, but I think Utah is a pretty cool guy because he hits women and doesn't afraid of anything. Now, let me explain that before the panda lawyer cuts the whole stream. So, there's a lot of slapstick in Shinibio, and mostly, it comes from Yuta just sort of like bonking, I would say, on the head. It's not proper hitting. He's not actually visiting physical violence on mostly Rika, but also, uh, I think Nibutani and, and, and Deko get a bop from time to time just to sort of pull them out. But yeah, it's, it's unusual in that regard, because usually it's the males who are the butt of the slapstick comedy, but here we have it sort of reversed, because Yuta's sort of trying to play the straight man. He's definitely a protagonist. I'm not sure if he's the main character. He's definitely the narrator, though, because we see things from his perspective, and so that's why we don't exactly know what's going on with Rika. He's got an embarrassing past, obviously. He's got it rooted in the Chinibio, and he's trying to move on from it, and despite his best efforts, despite the first day of of, of high school and everything, in walks Rika, the incarnation of Chinibio, and pulls him straight back. I have here in my notes, and I quote, bit of a grumpy prick and I will explain what I mean. He, he plays a straight man to an extent where he's grumpy, he doesn't want to go along with it, but secretly, he's kind of into it at the same time. But also, as this series goes on, you start realising that he's actually under a lot of pressure, and at one point, he snaps rather dramatically, and when you sort of go through and watch things, knowing that, you understand, because a wise person once said to me that a lot of pressure is put on the fixer in any relationship, and whether you decide to do that or unconsciously you try and do that. He does try and, and and do his best for Rika, but he doesn't know what's best for her. So he, he tries to help, he tries to support, but as it goes on, it becomes clear that uh, Rika is not putting on the Chinibio just because she wants to. So that brings us to uh, Rika. I'm not going to insist on the voice actors every time, just for the main two, but she is voiced by Uchida Maya, who is basically the queen of Chinibio. If you've seen a Chinibio-esque character, there's a decent chance that she does the voice. Perhaps the best one I could find while doing research for this is Ranko Kanzaki from Idolmaster Cinderella Girls, who is basically just this gothic lolita 
almost cut from the same cloth as Rika is. And uh, as a neat little uh, nod or a wink, she does the Japanese voice for Fischl in Genshin Impact, who has the same eye patch as Rika. She has the same sort of chinibio aspect as Rika. So it's really ingrained in that regard. I would say that she's by far the main character. She goes through the most arcs. She goes through the most evolution. And she's a very, very interesting character. She is shockingly vulnerable when it comes down to it, but she's very, very strong. And her defense mechanism, as Sats touched on, is her Chunibio. And it's always interesting to talk about this because when you mention defense mechanism, my immediate thought was the British and humor. The Brits tend to, you know, be sarcastic and make jokes and try and distance themselves from most things, but it's just another coping mechanism. Humor is to the Brits, uh, or the British rather, as, you know, Chunibio is to Rika. It's a coping mechanism. Do I spoil or do I not spoil? Go for it. Chunibio is her coping mechanism after the sudden death of her father. And to be fair, Rika probably handles that far better than I would. It, it, it's absolutely horrifying, you know, just, just to think about. It's a conscious act. You can see that because she does break her Chinibio character from time to time. First time it happens in episode uh, three when she's like just joking around with, uh, with Yuta. But you can see that she can be jolted out of it. When she gets rattled, she can start acting unusually quiet instead of her usual rumbunctious sort of outgoing Chinibio self. She's got a lot of layers which are sort of slowly peeled back as the season progresses. And her Chunibio, it's a part of herself, but it's also very much her way with dealing with reality. And in that regards, I would argue that she is the most mature out of the uh, Takanashi family, which is obviously her family. Because consider this, her mother is physically absent. Toka tries to throw herself into her work so she doesn't have to think about it. And Rika retreats to her mind. But you find out that they kept the fact that her father would pass away from her until the very last moment. So it was an almighty shock on that. So it's a coping mechanism. It, it sort of ties into to Camus' for idea of the philosophy of the absurd, which I found quite interesting because... Uh, that's one of my uh, my pet philosophers. Camus is indeed my boy. And it's just the idea that her Chinibio is her way of working through it because she does progress. She does slowly work through it. She insists about finding this unseen horizon as a way to give herself closure from it. So throughout the season, she insists that it's real. Like the first time in the at uh, the end of the first episode, she insists with rather more force than Yuta was probably expecting. And so he, he backs down. He, and as an audience, we sort of realize that maybe something deeper is going on. She also relies on Yuta far more than she realizes. And as we see throughout the series, when the Chinibio facade or when the Chinibio coping is pulled back, she is lonely, she is frail, she is vulnerable, and she sort of falls into apathy or depression. And particularly the last two episodes where that happens, they can make for some very very awkward viewing, I would say. She single-handedly codified the Chinibio character that exists to this day, because uh, I mentioned I'm into my anime. At the moment, one of the animes I'm watching is Komisan wa Komusha Des, which I think is Komisan wants to communicate in English. And there's a character called Nakanaka-san, who basically you swap the eye patch from Rika's right eye to the left and give her a bob cut, and it's the exact same character. So she, she still has a massive hold over uh, anime pop culture. Then we have sort of the interplay between Yuta and Rika. You could write a whole thesis on their dynamic. It really is incredible. Yuta inadvertently gave Rika the keys to the whole Chinibio thing. He helped her more than you realize, and it's only towards the end that you realize just how much Rika actually, uh, Yuta actually matters to Rika, as opposed to the family just basically saying, you know, lol, get over it, that's reality, move on, which obviously easier said than done. So Yuta sort of serves as Rika's guide, both metaphorically, in that he was the patient zero, he was the, the one that sort of sparked her Chinibio craze, and also he literally becomes the guy right at the very end, which we'll touch on, but he sort of helps her get 
the closure and get the catharsis that she so desperately wanted. And a recurring theme throughout the both the light novels and the anime is the fact that only Yuta can understand Rika because Nibutani tries to reject and bury her past. Yuta wants to do that, but he can't quite move away he can't bring himself to do it so as a result he's been there he knows what Shinibio is and he's also getting to learn Rika better one of the things that sort of brought them together was the fact that Yuta acted uh, he was so supportive of her particularly in the light novel she makes a point of saying that that he was the first one that didn't laugh at her that didn't make fun of her that didn't tell her to, or to, to grow up or whatever so just the fact that he understood her was like amazingly important for Rika so that sort of gives you a regard uh, gives you an idea of how much the two characters sort of mean to each other and and Yuta is also able to tap into his Chinubio side, as embarrassing as it is, you know, culminating in the confession scene, really clicks and he starts fully supporting Rika. And it makes it all the more brutal when he snaps and does what no one else could do because he was like her pillar throughout the whole thing. So moving on to the sporting characters now, we have uh, Nibutani. She plays into the cliches of the popular girl. She's polite, she's friendly, she's outgoing, but she's a bit of a bitch. <laughs> she can be quite abrasive once you get to know her. She can threaten characters, she can stomp on their feet, she can uh, do all sorts of horrible things to try and keep her Chinubio side buried when she thinks that's being threatened. She says that she's ex but as we find out, she actually holds on to the relics from her Chinubia past. And she's probably the most socially adept, I would say. She can manipulate and navigate most situations fairly easily. And she tries to push Rika and Yuta together when she seems to realize what's going on. And she's also interesting. She's very human in the, in the regard that she, you know, she's got a slightly more cynical, slightly more abrasive side. But she's also desperately trying to find her place. She keeps going from club to club to club to try and fit in. But in the end, she can't quite find what clicks for her. So she's always moving on and constantly dissatisfied. Next, we have Dekamori. She's actually an anime only character she does not exist in the original light novel she was written in by the third book really yeah, yeah, yeah. You wouldn't think so because the, the chemistry oh. is so good. And actually, Cumin and Toka are also anime original. They didn't exist in the original. Oh, wow. I know, right? Also, nice to know you're still there. I've been sort of monologuing for a while. No, 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 no. I've been I've been taking notes down. I'm like, didn't exist. That's why I'm not buying the light novel. Okay, got it. <laughs> so Dekamori is interesting because she has two aspects of her personality that are codified in anime, and that is her childish side. So first we have the twin tails and the second the slightly sapphic undertones or overtones in her relation with Nibutani but obviously I'm barred from explaining what happened so you're just going to have to trust me but both yeah sapphism or lesbianism and twin tails are both codified as being childish in terms of Japanese culture it's, it's sort of just the way it is it's sort of seen as being slightly curious in terms of the sapphism and the twin tails are seen as a more childish haircut so she's the youngest that does work but she's also she's got a she's got a decent head screwed on her shoulders i would say when in one of one of the more brutal scenes i think yuta absolutely lays into her out of frustration and brings her to tears she does admit that she knows that you know he tells her that chinubio isn't real and she says tears coursing down her face that she knows she always knew it was just a game she also is uh, she, she's shown to have great grades you know she also, she's very smart she's fantastically a sign of a fantastically rich family so she's already won at life you only find that out at the very last episode where it turns turns out that she was able to lend a car to get the gang to where they need to be for the for the triumphant climax. She also has a certain degree of naivety, but uh, that 
comes into play more in season two. So I'll get into the end now, don't worry. We have Cumin, another anime-only character. She's interesting. She's a bit of a blank slate, but that does work into the story's favor at the very end when Rika sort of passes her the flame of her of her tyrant's eye, which I think is the correct uh, translation. And she's able to keep that going until Rika gets it back. And she also is able to give quite the exposition dump, which really makes you to realize just how important and how, how bad he's messed up. And that drives him on to right the wrong that he has committed. And finally, we have Ishiki. He's a very, very unlucky character. You think he's going to be Togashi, uh, Yuta's friend, rather, but he's just sort of pushed to the side in favor of more of more scenes with the gang, essentially, with uh, with Cumin, with Dekamori, with Nibitani, with Yuta, and with Rika, the Oriental Magic Society Napping Club, or whatever it is. He's very cliche, he's very one note, and that just gets worse and worse as the series goes on. He does lend the bike to Yuta at the very end, so he, he does have his use. He is a bit of a Chekhov's gun, but if it's just for that, then... Not worth it, yeah. Bit of a shame, <laughs> yeah. So that would be my brief analysis of the characters. And if you want to listen to part two of Namogen... <laughs> <laughs> Jetsunani will return after these messages. <laughs> Next time on Jetsunani. First of all, fantastic analysis, honestly. Like you hit the nail on the head for so many of them. You would think watching this for the first time, all of these characters are just your cookie cutter. Oh, look, Yuta's bland, Rika's the weird, awkward one, Nibitani's the love interest, Dekamori's the brat. Yeah, Toka is the overbearing sister. Turning it back on to something you said and I think that leads us perfectly into the final part of this episode of course being really the emotional core so what makes Chinebio compared to any other anime what makes this different and as you said it is the reason behind Rika's Chinebio now throughout life we all go through certain situations whether they are fantastic whether they are downright depressing that is kind of life it's those experiences that shape who we are it is something you actually brought up perfectly there when you said that Rika responds quite positively, giving all things considered. Like, obviously, she doesn't go, woohoo, he's dead. Yeah. She is a heartbroken child, you know, that she wasn't told that her father's dying. And you can see before she becomes like a Chinibio, she tries to do her best. She tries to swallow her sadness and just be like, oh, I'm going to do the best. I'm not going to upset my mum because, you know, there's still that kind of resentment there but like a realistic childish resentment it's not like she's like I will never talk to my mother slams door furiously like there's a reason behind that and as I said going back to the beach episode this is where you find out why Rika acts the way she does because they all turn up in appropriate clothing for the summer whereas Rika turns up like the gothic dress and you think huh why is she you know you think oh it's just part of her chinebioism but there's a particular scene where she goes back to where she grew up and of course the house has been torn down it's heartbreaking because you finally get to contextualise why Toka has been so hard on her not because she's like an overbearing stereotype but because she is processing the grief in her own way she's obviously a lot more well she's older for one and she's a lot more mature so she can handle it in her own way but when Rika's father passes away she is basically really young she's not even a teenager yet I don't think. No, no, no. She, she's a, uh, she's yay high. Yes, yeah. as, as the saying goes. Yeah, she's like a wee chippy. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose she is actually. Yeah, it's all the fact made worse that in a scene where Toka sort of explaining what happened to Yuta, they kept it from her. They never told her that her dad was, you know, slowly getting sicker and sicker until he passed away. So it came out of 
absolutely nowhere. And it also makes a point of saying that they were fairly close. I suppose uh, briefly touch on Toka, but the more I watch it, the more I dislike that character, to be honest. Every time she shows up, horrible things happen to Rika, <laughs> basically. She is a crimson-eyed harlot, bringer of absolute misery, because the first time she sort of beats up Rika and, and you realize that she's sort of trying to, to, to rein in her delusions. The second time she abseils down from her flat, which is just above Yuta's, to his balcony saying that she needs help. And then it turns out that they're going back to, to, to Rika's grandparents and Rika's acting out a character so you know what's going on and then I think that the most unforgivable thing after the aforementioned beautiful confession by the end of the episode she comes in and saying uh, hey you know uh Yuta, I, I need you to do my dirty work here. I need you to snap her out of it for me. So she she never does the dirty work when it comes down to it. She does play along, seemingly. Like, if she was serious, she would not engage. But she does sort of play along with the Chinibio fighting. She always wins, naturally. But she does play into it. And then she starts getting, you know, annoyed with Rika by the fact that she's being encouraged by her behavior. If you sort of see where I'm coming from. I mean, I suppose if you're really analyzing it, you could look at that as her not wanting to hurt her sister. You yeah. Know? Uh, like I know I, I see what you mean about her enabling that behaviour yeah but at yeah, the same yeah. time she's not going to like lay into her and start I'm just trying to think of any anime where they just lay into each other until she does because you're you're talking about episode 8 I've got the notes right here and if, if we can skip to it essentially Rika's been trying to give Toka the slip so she told Yuta to go meet up with her she sneaks away but Toka finds them so Rika runs away on her own and then Toka takes Yuta aside to Rika's dad's grave and then you realise oh god so you know she, she's clearly upset she's clearly uh bottling a lot of stuff up the fact that she's back has really rattled stuff loose but yuta supports her he agrees to go with her because she sort of locked herself in a room because she's upset toka comes in playing the playing the typical villain it's like oh why have you done this i thought i could trust you as they make a break for it we also have the first time that the really sort of sad music plays it's called surgical kokoro to kokoro it's once again a lovely piece with violin and piano but it is incredibly melancholic the way it goes is that uh, it's it's at night she's framed by the blue light yuta comes in they just sort of run away toko comes in does some weird sort of foreshadowing and er can't believe you've done this kind of thing there's a leap of faith yuta jumps down first he catches rika they get on the bike they start pedaling towards her old base she starts explaining what the unseen horizon is and the idea is that she saw lights on the water the night her dad died this is this unseen horizon this is her coping mechanism and that's why she's been constantly insisting that that exists and it's constantly why she wants to breach this unseen horizon or this unseen boundary i can't remember exactly what the term is. Chunibyo is a simple story that's well done and nowhere does it show more I think in this scene because we have sort of happy music playing we got woodwind and piano it's upbeat we have Rika flashing back to happy memories she sees the dad briefly as she, she sort of gets there she stands there and then she just stops we see Yuta sort of arriving on the side the violins pick up the music swells the camera cuts to her point of view and it's an empty lot everything is gone everything falls silent there is not a single sound to be heard it's just the, the, you know she, she is stunned she is shocked everything that she held dear everything that she thought existed has been torn away from her and then at that moment you have toka who's arrived who arrives who's, who's been chasing them in the car she comes out and says this is reality papa is gone you have to accept it and you can just like it, it cuts to her to her cheeks not even her eyes you can see the tears roll down you know an absolutely heartbroken tone she says or she, she intones the, the words that sort of bring about the chinibio translation you know reality be rent synapse break vanishment this world but it is just so poignant so heartbreaking it it really is something and then episode eight it cuts straight to a brief recap of that and then you have rika and toka but really 
laying into it. Toka is upset, so she is quite literally beating the tar out of Rika. She gives her, she like slaps her backhandedly, so she gets all knuckles. She kicks her in her upper arm, and she gives another kick that sends her tumbling through like her mindscape of her house, which all of a sudden turns like floor plans and starts burning down as they fight. As Toka is just trying to beat reality or beat some sense into her, she's calling her selfish. She asks if Rika hates their mother. Why is she doing this? There's nothing we can do. We have to accept reality. You know, it, it's brutal. And this is a grown woman kicking the crap out of an out of a teenage girl. There really is some massive emotional weight to it. She says, our house is gone. Papa is gone. Rika refuses to, to, to give up and Yuta has to step in because he's finally started to realise what's going on. He says, it's because she understands that she's acting like this. Obviously, I don't condone that kind of behaviour, but it is quite realistic in a way because if you've got someone who, you know, you go through a shared experience, like especially mm, like no, something as dramatic as that, and they are kind of living in this fantasy land where they're completely denying what has happened. It's it's a human reaction at the end of the day, yeah. And just the frustrating, the outpouring, it, it's it's very, very poignant. And again, like it's not what you expect going into this anime, especially with the first couple of episodes where it's like, oh, haha, slice of life, yay. Are they going to get together or are they not? And then, you know, as you said, by episode like eight, it's like, haha, Rika's dad's dead. Yeah, no, it's pretty brutal. And up until that point, most of the quote unquote violence, you know, it's been completely slapstick. It's you to just bopping Rika on the head when she goes okay. a bit out of control or when she brings up something that he finds too embarrassing. Although, to be fair, Toka does bean her with a ladle pretty hard in episode two to finish the combat so it's not like she hasn't but this time I mean uh, to be fair both the voice actresses were really really leaning into it they were you could properly feel the emotion in their voices as they did it it's a very very powerful scene and you know it's contrast like you say it's contrast between the slapstick violence and the actual violence it's contrast between the light tone that the anime has had up until this point and now all of a sudden the serious gut punches are coming home very powerful very powerful to be fair and I have to admit what I do like about the reveal and you know how it unfolds is, as you said before, when Rika actually loses her Chidibio self, everything, as you said, it becomes like desaturated and quite bland and normal and there's even a scene where I think it's the same place where Rika and Yuta actually have their quote-unquote confession and they're looking out and he says, oh, look, the lights, yeah. and, you know. Yeah, she says, they're just lights. Yeah, uh, she just bluntly says, oh, they're just lights, and that is quite, that is really heartbreaking. All the magic and all the romance is just uh-huh. it's just gone because she's acting so out of character things are so wrong and another thing that I wanted to just touch on I was so smug about it because I thought I was the only one that realised but actually the first episode is mirrored but in a super depressing way in, in episodes 11 and 12 so we have the thing with the lights from their confession we have Rika and Yuta on the train station uh, as, as she's leaving but instead of her being all upbeat and dancing around the place and doing the Konami code with the with vending machine that's not there there's another bit as well that I'm brushing over but I don't like watching episodes 11 and 12 or at least the bits where she's acting out of character and stuff like that but it's just so much regret there's so much that's clearly wrong almost disassociation because everything is so horribly different and so wrong but that's the thing though you build up a relationship to 
towards the character of Rika through the early parts of the season. This Chunibio cell, yeah, she's strange, but at the same time, she is a character who has been through a lot and has decided this is who she's going to be. It's almost like seeing a friend that you haven't seen for years and just seeing them as a completely different person. And that's the thing that I think obviously is like a key tenant of the show where Yuta kind of looks at her but doesn't look at her in the same way. Like she doesn't, yeah, he doesn't yeah, yeah. see that excited girl that he fell in love with. He just sees this heartbroken, devastated person. Going back slightly before she loses her tribalism, personally, on the one hand, I think this is a dick move by Yuta. So the reason, as you said, that she loses her tribalism is because Toka asks him. Going through my notes here, so Toka shows up and immediately turns things on on their head straight after the best directed and best put together confession scene in all of anime. So as it turns out, Toka's moving to Italy for work and Rika's absent mother is coming back. I sort of mention here that Toka sort of goes for the emotional blackmail line as she mentioned that Rika's mother has tried time and time again to talk to Rika, but Rika sort of blocked her out. The scene takes place in a restaurant, but what she does is she bows her head. She does something that's called dogeza, I believe, and it's basically abasing yourself. And for Japan, which is all about maintaining a certain degree of, of poise and standard, this is super embarrassing. And Toka says, talk to her. I'm sure she'll listen. While Yuta tries to defend her, he says to Toka that she does face reality. She understands, but she can't process her sadness and she doesn't really want the Chinibio-ness to disappear, essentially. But Toka just bluntly says, you know, she'll never find what she wants to see. So we have Yuta sort of struggling with this already. And then Rika's mother shows up. And once again, it's very well done because the mother, she's very downcast. She looks tired. She looks work-worn. We find out much later in the film that she's been, she works as a nurse, so she's already run ragged. But you can clearly tell that this is also weighing on her as well. She's looking for a daughter. Yuta says, sorry, she's just gone out. You missed her. She gives Yuta a handmade lunch that she made for Rika, presumably as an attempt to reconnect or to say sorry or something. And then she just says, you know, I'm sure she still isn't ready to see me again. So that's a lot of pressure to put on Yuta, to be fair. You could see it that maybe he feels guilty because Rika's Chunibio is at risk of tearing her family apart kind of thing. But this has been building up and building up and building up. And we know that Yuta sort of wants to move away from the whole nature of Chunibio. But at the same time, he loves Rika for who she is, Chunibio and all. You know, we've had a lovely scene. We have the confession scene. And what brought on that confession scene was another really, really beautiful scene where Rika almost falls off a roof after Nibutani keeps trying to engineer situations where they'd be alone. They have a heart to heart. It's just the two of them. They've been acting awkward because they started realizing that they have feelings for the other. Yuta says that he finally understands Rika, that the Unseen Horizon is something special and it's not just something random or cool sounding. There's there's something behind it because he's seen the fight with Toka and Rika at their old house. He's seen her dad's grave. He understands what's going on. It's a very poetic scene and he's offering her acceptance and support, which is literally all that she's ever wanted. This sort of, you know, brightens her up. She goes to the other side of the uh, of the of the scaffolding and she slips. Very much Lion King style. You know, I, I had to try very hard to not say out loud, brother, help me! Because <laughs> it really is clinging on to the edge. So we have Yuta getting a bit of a, a hero moment because Nibutani shouts down that he can reach her from the third floor and because there's a balcony and because every time Rika has appeared that's not in school, she's come down from the balcony and, and, and Yuta's pulled her in. So it's kind of another, another thing they have. So he barrels down the stairs he races through the empty classroom he gets her and in a beautiful scene orange uh, you know orange lighting we get a 360 zoom as they embrace as a couple you know they haven't kissed yet but you can really 
really feel the intimacy that's there suspension bridge effect or not you know they you can see that that's finally broken through their awkwardness and it moves them to confess later on in the next episode going back to what you were saying about rika losing her chinubioness about how much yuta meant for her after yuta finally gets it after he said that he'll support her that she all she's wanted is to be understood and accepted for who she is that's happened and now you have that person you have your significant other who is all of a sudden upset or angry at you and screaming at you to do something that you never thought they would ask you to do. But because it's them, Yuta is the only one that is able to snap Rika out of her genubioness. And that whole scene is quite poignant as well. Again, as I say, it's just this happy-go-lucky anime up until, as you said, episode 8. And then we get this really brutal scene where just as they're preparing to go up for like this talent show. Or a, a flash mob, wasn't it? I think it's like a kind of chinebio play or something you know they're just showing off their oh look we are characters and but it's pushed by nibutani because she wants to outdo the original drama club oh yeah she was a mm-hmm. part of but then got bored of yeah <laughs> exactly in the one hand you think oh it's a dick move that utah basically did this to um rika just before they were gonna go on yeah of, of all the times <laughs> but on the other hand you do forget he is still a teenager like you yeah, know he's yeah. not probably not mentally equipped to you know think no. it through especially being pressured like that you know after meeting Rika's mum after talking to Toka a lot of blackmail and like he's, he's trying to fix her but there's a lot of pressure on the fixer he's trying to take all that on by himself but he has no one there that he can talk to kind of thing so it does make sense that he snaps but then again it really brings to the fore the sort of human aspect of all the characters none of them are perfect they all make mistakes they all make the wrong calls or they're all a bit abrasive or sensitive about certain topics or stuff like that but it's just so poignant in that regard they're not the sort of moe blob carbon copy characters of a typical anime they really do have flaws but that just makes them all the more human and all the more relatable because we've all made bad calls i would say we have all hurt people inadvertently or otherwise and we have all felt absolutely horrible for that so we can really sort of feel how that has happened and we don't even see it we just cut to him under the tree rika comes up he tells her to take off the eye patch everything cuts to quiet it goes all silent and the episode jump cuts to later in the evening it's yuta it's the evening he's sitting alone by the chain mail fence chain link fence rather and all you know is that something has gone horribly horribly wrong really is quite unnerving the whole sequence is and especially when as you said he snaps later on at dekamori and you summarize that scene pretty well where you know she says she knows it's make-believe and i think deep down as well i think there's something that utah says that they all know rika deep down doesn't believe she's got these powers yeah she knows they're not actually real later on you know she'll use it as an excuse rather than a justification you do see that when when she's trying to study for the test that she tries to get away with it but in doing so it shows she's conscious of it because she's trying to use her chinebioness to get away from studying which is something she hates and if i can touch on the the, the sort of dekamori yuta scene it's as rika's boarding like everyone knows she's not coming back but so much is so unsaid and once again it's really relatable in a couple when you have an argument which i'm sure it happens as regrettable as it is but all of 
a sudden communication just goes. You don't talk. There's an awkwardness that, between you that normally isn't there. And that's exactly what they have been able to put in this anime. There's so much that left unsaid. Yuta can only smile. Rika doesn't even say anything. She just sort of walks in. The doors close between them. The train goes off. It's incredibly raw. But then the reason he snaps is because Dekamori calls him out on all his shit. She asks why he didn't ask her to stay. She says that Yuta was a pillar for her. And I quote, an anchor for her heart. So that she called her, she, uh, like Rika called Dekamori every night to tell her what the Dark Flame Master had done this or that he believed in her. And that's when she says it. She believed in you. And that's what makes you to snap probably out of frustration. And he really, really does lay into her. There's no one seen Horizon. Her dad is dead. There's nothing he can do. And at this point, Dekamori is really distraught. I mean, once again, fair play to the voice, to the act, voice actress that does it. But she is screaming. She is hitting him. She is crying. He just goes on to say how pointless it is. They don't exist. Dekamori just sort of collapses under the weight of this all. And all she can say is, I know, and she runs away. So once again, Yuta has been blotting his copybook a bit, but here it just is like a really low blow. If at any point you do not like the character, I would say that this is it, where he just utterly takes her down. Before this, <laughs> you have Dekamori who uh, ambushes them on the way to school and she tries to reignite Rika's Chunibyo again and she almost gets there, but it's just not enough and you can already see that she's upset with that. Kicking a puppy or kicking her while she's down, it really is rough to see. It really is. It's like, as you said, all that joy in a wife and keeping a childish charm. Wonder, the fascination, the beauty, the, the, the possibilities. No, it's all gone. Everything's desaturated. Everything's horrible. This is reality, but... But to end the episode on a positive note, oh <laughs> what forward. a scene yeah yeah the ending is absolutely fantastic where basically yuta goes for rika you know he cycles to her grandparents which is where they go in the beach episode would you say it's cliched a little but i feel as if it's needed absolutely but i would say it's cliched in the best possible way without seeing the anime you sort of know the scene it's where it, it, it's the sort of redemption it's where the guy's going to cycle through the night to get to the one he loves to write or wrong. You've seen it in so many other films but here it is in Shinibio but it's so well done as well. Yuta's been pretty bummed out and he's trying to work his way through this. Throughout this time Dekamori's been acting as Rika would because she, the Tyrant's Eye has been passed on and she makes a point of mentioning at one point the Tyrant's Eye must have done as long as the Dark Flame Master exists which as it turns out is a message that Rika has passed on an episode prior and also we have Dekamori acting out of character because Yuta broke her spirit as well. He's a bit of a prick like that. Nibutani herself remarks there's nothing wrong with being passionate but like she says Chinubio, it's, uh, it's the idea that I'm different from everyone else and I'm special because I have realised that. And she remarks on both her and Yuta's cases of Chinubio and how they wanted to be normal high schoolers. But this was just them falling into the same trap and going too far and coming up with their own take on the image or their own take on the matter because normalcy doesn't exist. It's okay to have that sort of spark of madness. And then the final thing that pushes Yuta to pedal through the night to get to Rika's side is that the Dark Flame Master gets the last laugh, which I absolutely adore. He sent himself a letter in the past as the Dark Flame Master <laughs> telling him he's special and helping him to come to this realisation. As you said, it is a little bit cliche, but it's everything that's right with this anime. It does it so right. It's so earned. It's like, I, I, I am not ashamed to admit I was almost on the edge of my seat like, yes, come on, you can do it. It really is building up to that. It is cliche, but in the best possible way. It's another beautiful shot. You have the lights, you have the night, and then he's on the way and he's stopped by Cumin once again 
again who sort of fills in the final blanks because we have seen super blurry pictures of Rika and who we assume a young Rika and who we assume to be the Dark Flame Master but then she tells him just how much that he has mattered to her she reveals to him that after like she saw him on the balcony two years ago or as, as he was sneaking about down below in full Dark Flame Master mode and uh, and I quote she watched you every day after that to live like that was wonderful much more honest and cooler than bottling up your feelings and living how others would want so Rika was impressed by Yuta's way of expressing his feelings instead of bottling it up or, or, or you know suffering for others sake essentially so she idolized him she followed him and it was what sort of bought her the time and place to sort of work through it human's explanation says that she was clearly aware that Chinibio was a method of expressing self-consciousness and as a result her seemingly shallow character was actually super super deep and you see the flashbacks of Rika sort of putting on an eye patch and bandaging her forearms for the first time she was literally saved by Chinibio literally saved by Yuta it had always been about him he was so incredibly important and has been the whole time and as a result the next shot is just him screaming Rika to disguise as he leaps over a hill and sort of pedals down to the lights of the town below and then it just accelerates from there because something we haven't said but I would say that the the anime is all killer no filler there is not a scene that doesn't push the plot along in some regard it keeps going it doesn't stop at any moment so the moment we have Yuta and his final realisation and him shouting Rika's name to the skies it cuts to her she apparently hears him she sees that her plants are dead she pulls out a holy water sprayer which we've seen way in the start she sees it she starts crying and just as she's at her absolute lowest point we see him outside on the roof lit by the moon extremely cliched in full dark flame master mode get up and, and voice and saying that they are bound by contract and then you have a wonderful bit where the grandfather comes out and starts screaming for the grandmother to fetch his gun because he thinks Yuta's a thief so you have this ticking clock moment and he throws out the ultimatum to her do you want to stay in this boring reality or do you want to come with me and change that it's once again the leap of faith moment but we've already seen it it's been mirrored before and of course she jumps they catch and Yuta catches her they embrace once more you have another 360 degree spin on a white background you have wonderful love song playing it's all coming together so so well <laughs> so what you're saying is you're a fan of this anime <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you might you might be getting that. And then once again playing to the cliches, but then all of a sudden you have Nibutani and Ishiki and Dekamori and Kumin appearing to help them along. They they sort of hold back the grandfather, they distract a police uh, policeman who comes along with Ishiki pretending to be a pervert. And then, you know, you have Yuta peddling along. He remarks on the beauty of the lights and distance because they're right by the sea, although Rika still just bitterly remarks that they're just, you know, they're ship lights, they're not real. And then, you know, everything goes soft, they arrive at dark and deserted stretch of beach you have Yuta who once again says reality be rent synapse broken vanishment this world you have just a soft piano and string but it's uh, keying you to be ready for something incredibly emotional and then the scene that follows you could screenshot any moment of it and it would make a magnificent wallpaper it is just beautiful it sort of flashes to the Chibia world you see this sea of fireflies that come up you have the universe mirrored in the sea below because Yuta uh, you know he's been I mentioned before he was the guy both metaphorically in terms of Chinibio but literally now he has brought Rika to the unseen horizon that she has so longed for he just says tell him what you wanted to say what you never had a chance to say and my god the tears came on at that bit it is so beautiful it is vulnerable you have Rika saying good 
by. You have images of her childhood playing. You have the oboe and woodwind, which aren't used very much in the score, but they're typically associated with her father. You see the dad smile. You see him say something to only Rika, who hears it in a white background. And then the lights flare. They rush to the camera and the scene just fades away to that bit on the beach. But what a scene it was. Honestly, I cannot top that. I think that's honestly like a great place to end the episode, I would say. Honestly, um, <laughs> just going off of that as one final point, the ending is beautiful. You do get Rika finally getting to see her version of the Unseen Horizon. You know, obviously it's not real, but to her it's real. And again, going back to what I was saying before, we all go through things in life that are difficult, that we are unable to cope with, and we all have our own coping mechanisms for that, whether it's pretending to be a different character, whether whether it's video games, whether whatever it is, that's how each of us cope. And of course, for Rika, it is being this character who has all of these powers so that she can see her dad in the end and finally have that closure. I totally agree. I think that this anime does it so beautifully, so perfectly. Don't get me wrong, I know we kind of just spent the last hour or two just saying, oh yeah, it's uh, depressing. It's depressing, but good. <laughs> Bittersweet, yeah. But it, it, it's, it's catharsis. At the end of the day, it is catharsis. It's, it's showing you something poignant and emotional that helps you work through stuff that you're working through like you know when I found this anime I was struggling with depression and I'm not saying it's all down to the anime I'm not saying this is some kind of panacea but it does it did help me work through a certain part of that it is a simple story well told with hidden depth couldn't have said it better myself honestly if you're looking for a slice of life anime that has a kind of different twist on it I would wholeheartedly recommend season one and as you said there is a season two technically I would temper your expectations for that. We're not going to go into it now, but I would temper your expectations because it's not the best buzz. There is some other goodness, to be fair. There is. It's not all bad. Yeah. There's. Well, I was going to say in, t- in terms of just season one, because you also have something called Shinibio Light, which is like five minute skits from different parts, like just a bit of extra. And in one of them, episode three, I think it is, you see the scene that Rika sees that got her into Shinibio in the first place with Yuta in full Dark Flame Master Clobber escorting his sister out as they go to, to pick up something at a convenience store, oh, which yeah. is kind of funny. And there's another one, which is something, A Depth of Field, which is Rika and Dekamori having a giant mecha battle for five episodes, and then at the end, it sort of cuts reality, and they're just dressed there just in cardboard boxes and stuff, which is pretty funny to be fair. There's also the film, which is good, because it adds in a bit more context, and it ties in season one and season two a bit better, but uh, it ties in season one and season two a bit better, with season two being the, the disappointment after the, the magnificent thing that season one is it lets it down a bit badly although to be fair I think it's worth slogging through just to get to the film take me on but my god season two is, is, is something else so we're coming close to wrapping up there was just a few more things I wanted to touch on if that's alright first would be to say that there is such an amazing chemistry between these characters the bants the cheeky bants they flow you really get the feeling that these are friends who have known each other for a decent amount of time who get on well with each other who like each other i mean in the case of dekamori nibutani they, they are a bit more combative but you do get the feeling that there is a that there's a good rapport that goes
chosen. Uh, there's also a couple of themes I wanted to touch on, the like, notion of delusions. There's the idea of trauma. And one interesting thing that I found out at university that trauma is usually defined as loss. And as long as you have this trauma, this loss, you are unable to move on. It sort of stunts your growth. So it's kind of interesting to see the interplay between trauma as resulting in Chinubio and Chinubio helping Rika to work through this idea of trauma. There's also symbolism that I wanted to touch on. <laughs> You could really tell I went all in for this one. But it's the idea of connectivity, I would say, because I was able to pick out three key bits of symbolism, two by myself and then one which I was prompted by a blog, which I missed. But that's bridges, trains and bicycles. So bridges tend to serve to link to inaccessible places, but we see Rika and Yuta often going across them. Their special place where they, you know, where they, they start getting feelings for each other, dare I say, where they confess is under a bridge. And it also links Dekamori's attempt to try and rekindle Rika's lost Chunibyo. Also, in episode three or four, we have Dekamori and Nibutani fighting on a bridge because, you know, they're linking two inaccessible places, Dekamori and Nibutani. They're, they're, you know, the complete opposites of each other. We have the trains that serve to sort of accelerate their relationship because they take Yuta and Rika to faraway places where, you know, they're their grandparents' house and the beach and stuff like that. But that also accelerates their relationship because Yuta gets greater understanding. And then Rika is completely overwhelmed after her really serious fight with uh, Toka. And so she she flees back, but Yuta's able to catch her. So it's just the two of them in the night and the train really accelerates their relationship because once they're back, I mean, it's basically a date without being a date. They go and grab a bite to eat. There's a sort of a kiss fake out. The first one, you think they, Rika's going to go in for a kiss, but she actually just draws something, a, a seal on his hand. And uh, finally, we've mentioned bikes, but bikes, they only show up for the heavy emotional scenes. When you think about it, they're fairly intimate. They're, they're made for riding two people max. You know, you have Yuta who's usually on on the pedals and you have Rika who's either on the bars or on, on behind or hanging on with her roller shoes. So we see them when Rika's put one together to escape the seaside and go to her house, but it's followed by Toka the first time. You see the bike the second time where she, Yuta pedals them out to her old home. And then finally, you have the bike that takes them to the farewell scene. So it's just only ever Yuta and Rika and the bike. So it's connection. It's a, sort of a symbol, but it's also very, very intimate and very sweet in that regard. And finally, one more thing I wanted to touch on, but I wasn't able to bring the conversation around to, was that you mentioned that the, the teacher in the uh, Japanese version of the dub, she speaks English, and in the English dub, she speaks French. So I have a little analysis of what they say. And before you're wondering, who is this guy who claims to speak French so knowledgeably? Rest assured, I have spent 15 years of my life in France. I went through uh, high school and university here, so I... I know a thing or two about the language. Just a tad. <laughs> Just a tad. Not a humble brag, humble brag. So the first thing she throws out is qu'est-ce que vous pensez de Rika? It's very stiff and the enunciation is all wrong. What people don't realise about French is it's actually a very, very flat language. So what she says is basically qu'est-ce que vous pensez de Rika? Whereas what would be more correct is qu'est-ce que vous pensez de Rika? You have that very, very flat monotone, boring Frenchness. The phrase in itself is okay. It's just very, very, very stiff. It'd be a bit more natural, a bit more French to say Qu'en pensez-vous de Rika? Instead of Qu'est-ce que vous pensez de Rika? Cumin, rather, her, her French pronunciation is actually better than Rika's uh, voice actress when they first throw, throw out the bonjour. Rika's French accented English is pretty on point, though, is when she starts speaking like this, it is actually uh, quite on point. But then it loses all the points because Nana, the, the teacher, so Nana, absolutely mangles an next sentence because she says, Il est facile de vous parler comme cela. Uh, no, that's not how the French, the infinitives work in French. It's just been copy pasted from English. Il est facile de vous parler comme cela. It's easier for you to speak like that but no no you would be more like eh, bah, c'est plus facile de vous de parler comme ça so she blew it 
she absolutely blew it. <laughs> so basically what you're saying is that one scene ruined the anime completely. Zero out of ten, don't watch Genevieve. Zero out of ten, don't watch. Although there's a lot of German that's thrown that's thrown around as well. And I have to say that Rika's German is pretty on point. Like her weapon is uh, Die Königin der Nacht, which means the Queen of the Night. She has a couple of interesting attacks. And one of them, I think it's when she's fighting Toka for the really the really serious one. So in episode eight, or yeah, eight. It's uh, Schwarze Aschenputtel, which literally means Black Cinderella, which is just a, a fun little thing to watch out for. And this is why I brought you onto the episode. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I aim to please, yeah. Honestly, thank you. First of all, thank you for coming on the episode, Wonko. And second of all, thank you for having such a thorough analysis on this series. We've skipped a lot, to be fair. There's, oh, there's so much to go into. You could literally write a thesis just on Yuta and Rika's you know, character dynamics. There is so much that me and Sats have cut aside in the name of brevity and I'm sure that in the editing process that our poor sats has to go through there's going to be more still that's paired off but if anything please take home the passion that both me and Satsunami have for this series it really is something else it goes back to the old days where you know it was a simple story well told it's interesting it has hidden depths it's a really an anime of two halves you have the rom-com you have the seriousness it's not perfect if, if there's one thing that I would say I'd say it's stronger when it's doing the slice of life and the more rom-com stuff and it's a bit egregious bit trigger happy with the raining on Rika's parade just one of one of the scenes would do in the second half either the revelation that her dad's gone or the revelation that her mum's coming back didn't need both of them I think she was a bit of a chew toy for the universe in that regard but it's it's just so well done there's humour there's charm there's a lot of love it's well done there's something for everyone it's beautifully put together there's chemistry between the characters and it really is a breath of fresh air if you're feeling a bit burnt out on modern anime a bit burnt out on the old isekais or or anything else for that matter just step back and give Chinibio a go uh, I would say if you're burnt out with all the action anime and that kind of thing go check out Chinibio you honestly won't regret it it's quite short episodes you know it's 20 odd minutes long as usual for an anime there's about 10 episodes for the first season I want to say or is there more actually there's like 11 12 plus 12? one with oh. the OVA okay. that we can't talk about yes <laughs> <laughs> I forbid it yeah that's next week's episode Whew, I'll get started already but once again Monko thank you so much again for coming on this episode it's been a pleasure talking about this anime with you oh it's always a pleasure uh, I have a couple of quotes from the light novel that I could end on if you want Yuta resumes basically he's on Shinibio he says that everyone has events that happen to them those events are the reason that some people get involved in Shinibio it enchants them or it protects them or so on and then also right at the very end because brief aside the LNs are a bit more focused on re- and Yuta. They don't stretch out nearly as long in time as the anime does, and they're actually very well written as well. Uh, I would definitely say give them a whack. He says, will this delay her recovery? Who cares? The most important part is having someone around who understands you. One who doesn't care about the disease. Thus, Chunibio. Oh, also they kiss immediately in the light novel, making it immediately better than the series. <laughs> yes, and on that note, I'm going to go away and yeah, cry in a dark corner, because I can't believe that. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> Back to my Dark Souls then. You mean two seasons on a movie and they only get what? You know what? I'm not even going to spoil it. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, thank you all so, so much for listening to this episode. Seriously, go check it out. It's a fantastic anime. But if you want to hear more content from the Chatsunami peeps, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, YouTube, and of course our website. Just look for the Red Panda under the name Chatsunami, and we'll see you there. But until then, thank you all so, so much for listening to this episode and as always stay safe stay awesome and most importantly stay hydrated